All right. Well, good morning, River City. It is good to be with you. My name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you guys for worship this morning. Um, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you this morning. Glad that you would join us. And uh, I say this every week, but we, we would genuinely love to get to know you. We'd genuinely love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And so uh, find me, find Aaron, find somebody else who's been up front or looks like they know what's going on around here. Uh, we really would love to get to know you and help you get plugged into the community here. Um, excited to continue walking our way through our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you have been gone or if you are visiting with us this morning, let me just catch you up on where we're at and we'll dive into our study of the book. 1 Corinthians, uh, as we've talked about, it's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul uh, to uh, a church that was in the city of Corinth. It was uh, in the part of Greece that basically connected the mainland of Greece to the island kind of that sticks off the end of it there. And and Corinth uh, was a church that Paul helped plant about five years before he wrote this letter. And so he knows these people, and he loves them, and he is deeply concerned about their good. And what we know is that, that Corinth was this incredibly important port city because of its location. It controlled east-west trade between Rome and basically the rest of the Mediterranean. And so it was a very wealthy and prominent city in, in the day at the time. But it was also a new city. It was full of new people because Rome had conquered the city and destroyed it and left it desolate for a while before they decided it was good and ready to replant the city and restart it with people loyal to Rome. And so the city of Corinth was not just an important and wealthy city, it was, it was a new city full of people uh, settled mostly by Rome with freed slaves and former ar army veterans. And, and so what you have is a city that is full of people who are making a name for themselves, who are, who are starting new lives with new purposes and, and seeking to create new identities for themselves. And, and so there was this very aspirational and upwardly mobile mindset that was at the very the heart of the Corinthian culture. And, and in Corinth, everything revolved around climbing the social and economic ladders of the day or maintaining your place at the top of those ladders. One commentator, he, he summed it this way. He says, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. See, in Corinth, everything was about you. It was about you making a name for yourself and making an identity for yourself and climbing the ladder. And tragically, what we see is that the church in Corinth was no exception What's so painfully clear as we've studied the letter so far is that they, what they are most deeply committed to is not God's glory and the advancing of his kingdom. What they are so deeply committed to is their own glory and the advancing of their own name in the city that they live in and their own identity. And as we've seen, that their utterly self-focused mindset was causing all kinds of problems it was totally distorting their view of leaders and of leadership itself. It was leading them towards fighting and division in the church as a whole and towards individuals in the church suing each other over trivial matters. It was resulting in them not only approving of all kinds of sexual immorality in the lives of others, but, but practicing all kinds of sexual immorality themselves. And like we saw the last two weeks in chapter 7, it was causing them to view their marriages and even their singleness as ultimately as opportunities for to be used in self centered and self-gratifying ways. You see, everything in Corinth revolved around you and how things might benefit or fulfill you. 
You see, and while this church, while they may believe the message of the gospel, that they were saved by the person and the work of Jesus, their, their lives and their community was not being ongoingly formed by it. Instead, their, their lives and their community were just being shaped by the culture that was all around them. Again, a culture that just kept crying out that the world is about you. And that mindset was not only harming them as individuals in their own relationship with God or even as a community, it was harming their witness to a watching world. See, in the common theme that runs throughout the book, the, the, the issue that Paul keeps bringing up over and over and over and over again throughout the book of 1 Corinthians is that, is that as Christians we have been set apart by God and set free by God no longer to live as slaves to the pursuit of our own glory and our own good. But instead we've been freed by God to live instead for his glory and for the good of others. And the reason why Paul has to keep repeating that is because the Corinthians and us as well, we forget that reality all the time. See, the message we hear over and over in our own world around us is focus on yourself, express yourself, promote yourself. If you like parks and recs, treat yourself, right? It's a mindset that leads us to value and prioritize the exercising of our own rights and our own freedoms above pretty much everything else. You see, the same is true in first century Corinth. And the idea that you would willingly limit your own freedoms, that you would willingly set aside the, the rights and the privileges that you might have, that, was, that would have been wildly countercultural. After all, freedom's the ability to do whatever you want to do, isn't it? You see, the reality that we'll see this week and in the coming chapters as we study is that the, the mark of real Christian maturity is not the ability to exercise your personal freedoms, but instead the real mark of a mature Christian is one who is willing, who is free to lay down your own freedoms for the good of others and for the glory of God. You see, the good news of the gospel is not that you've been set free to do whatever you think is right or good but rather that you are now actually free to lay down your freedoms for God's glory and for the good of others. And the reality, furthermore, is that if you are actually unwilling to limit your own freedoms, then you are not actually free at all. You're just a slave to yourself still. And see, as Paul is writing to these Corinthians and he's speaking to us as well, that there is a life that is found not in being a slave to ourselves, but in living for the glory of God and the good of others. And I think so deeply that is a message we all need to hear and be reminded of this, this morning. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll read our, God's word and study it together. Jesus, thank you for our time together this morning. And thank you that you have enabled us and allowed us to gather together that we might study your word. And God, we just come as we do every week, and the reality is we so desperately need you. God, we need you and your word to be shaping our hearts, and we need you and your word to, to be motivating our lives and to be conforming us not into the image of the world around us, but to, to look like your son, Jesus. And so, God, we come this morning say that, saying that we need you to do that in us again this morning. 
And so I need you to be able to teach and preach what is right and good and with any kind of authority other than my own, which is totally worthless. And we need you to enable us to hear and respond. And so without you, Jesus, we have nothing. And so help us, God, for our good and for your great glory above everything else, for the good of others that we might submit ourselves to your to you and to your word this morning. And so we need you for all of that. God, help us as we study. Amen. Well, uh, we are this morning uh, going to be diving into actually two sections in the book of Corinthians. We're going to be in uh, all of chapter 8 and as well a section at the end of chapter 10. Uh, don't worry, we're not skipping all of 9. We'll get back to that in coming weeks. But what we are doing as we study this morning is Paul's addressing how this one issue that he's going to talk about, uh, how it affects, how it kind of applies to two main contexts. One in the context of our relationships with fellow Christians, and the other in the context of our relationships with people that don't know Jesus yet. And so we're kind of pulling what he has to say about this issue together on these two different contexts together into one sermon. So buckle up. We probably got more than we have time for. Okay. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in chapter 8. It begins this way. Now about food sacrifice to idols. I know you are just riveted already, right? We know that we all possess knowledge. You're going to see a couple times in the passage, Paul quotes stuff. He's quoting a letter that they had written to him, right? And so he's quoting things that, arguments that they made or things that they had said. And so you see those little quotes, that's him, that's him basically saying, hey, you guys were writing about this, you were asking me about this. So and again, so about food sacrifices, we know that we all possess knowledge, they say, but, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many little g-gods and little l-lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. For some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God and their conscience is weak and so it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we eat, do not eat and no better if we do. But be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, of your freedoms, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother or sister from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, then I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. He goes on in chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the, I have the right, I have the freedom to do anything, but not everything is constructive. You see, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. And 
But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience and not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? And if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, then why am I denounced? Because of something I thank God for. Now, if you zoned out the last few minutes, just tune back in because Paul sums it all up, right? The last couple of verses, he sums everything up. If you, if you miss everything, just, the la- just focus with me here, right? Verse 31, he sums the whole thing up this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. For even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. All right, so what to do about food sacrifice to idols? I know it's a question every one of you has been deeply wrestling with this week, right? You all saw the Hy-Vee deals, right? And there's an incredible sale on demon meat this week, and you're like, do I, do I, do I eat it or not, right? Like, is it a thing? My grill is ready, but like, I don't know if my heart is ready. Like, what should I be doing, right? In all seriousness, though, I think, I think sometimes it's passages like this that can cause people to think, yeah, the Bible's just some old, outdated book that is irrelevant and doesn't have anything to say about our lives today. But, but what I hope you see as we study this morning is that, that while this specific example that Paul is addressing here might not, might not really meet you in your everyday life, the underlying question that he's addressing, that he's answering, affects all of us every day. And it's simply this, as Christians, how do we engage with the culture around us? How do we engage with the culture around us? And how do we use the freedom that we have in Christ as we live in the world and yet not be of it? You see, what parts of the world and what parts of our culture can or should we participate in? And what do we need to reject or flee from? You see, there's plenty of places in the Bible where the Bible is incredibly black and white about what God says is right and wrong and what we should be thinking and acting and doing and what we should not be thinking about and acting on and doing. But the Bible does not address every matter in life. And so what are we to do in all those gray areas? How do we figure out what it looks like for us to be as Jesus prayed, that we'd be in the world but not of it? What do we do? Well, in response to that question, Christians throughout history have unfortunately tended to fall into two main ditches that are on the side of the road towards what it looks like to really follow Jesus. And the first ditch is the, is the one of legalism. You see, when it comes to all those gray areas, the way you do is you just decide whatever your conscience tells you is right or wrong, and then you make up a bunch of rules that keep you from, from uh, going into those things, and, and you help you to live according to those convictions, and then you just apply those rules universally to everyone in every situation. And if you're really good at it, you try to find a verse, probably out of context, that backs up what you're trying to say, okay? And the ditch on the other side of the road is the ditch of license, right? You say, I'm not under the law, right? We're free in Christ. I can do whatever I want to do as long as the Bible doesn't specifically say I'm not supposed to do it and as long as I don't really feel bad about it, right? I can can do whatever I really want to do. You see, in the Corinthian church, was full of Christians who had careened into both of those ditches, 
There's one group in the church who are using the truth about their freedom in Christ as a, as a license to do whatever their consciences allowed them to do with little or no regard to how their actions might affect the lives of other people. And there was another group in the church who didn't fully understand their freedom in Christ. And they were withdrawing further and further away from the world and feeling polluted and defiled by it. And they were condemning their fellow brothers and sisters. They were condemning anyone who didn't do the same things that they were doing. You see, and as you read the passage, what you see is that throughout the thing, Paul's actually correcting both of these groups. You see, because the truth is, is that both of them are just seeking their own good instead of the glory of God and the good of others. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, the legalists sought their own good and ignored the way that their convictions unnecessarily bound the consciences of their fellow believers, as well as ignoring God's call for them to really love their unbelieving neighbors. While the licentious group, on the other hand, sought their own good and ignored a way that their approach might harm their fellow believers and scandalize the consciences of their unbelieving neighbors. Throughout the passage, Paul's uh, word to both is stop seeking your own good and instead prioritize the glory of God and the good of others. And so let's take a look at the way that gets fleshed out throughout our passage, right? I mentioned as we read that there's a number of times that Paul's quoting things that they had written back to him in a letter, right? Previously, they had written him a letter asking a bunch of questions about various matters, things that were going on in the church, I might add, while conveniently ignoring all of the actual problems that were really happening in their church, right? It was like their distraction tactic, right? It's like, you know, as a kid, like if you get in trouble, right? You're like, oh, yeah, let me just confess to this other much smaller not big deal thing, right? While totally ignoring the fact that I just beat my brother over the head with something, right? You know? Anyways, so the specific question that they're, they're asking about is whether or not they should eat this food, specifically this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And, and that context is important to understand, right? See, the city of Corinth was filled with temples dedicated to different idols and all kinds of false gods, right? And those temples weren't just at the center of religious life in the city of Corinth. They were at the center of social life, right? You would have all kinds of banquets and gatherings and meetings and celebrations that would take place in these temples. And these temples were also central for the production of food, specifically meat. You see, meat was not nearly as common in the ancient world, and, and uh, pretty much any meat that would would have been eaten, would have begun its journey to your plate uh, as a sacrifice to some kind of an idol in, in, the, in rituals of worship of some kind or another. And some of that would have been eaten by people in the temple. Some of that uh, would have been sold in the markets of the city, right, as a way to, you know, people were sacrificing stuff all the time. And so it was a way that you could basically find cheap meat to eat. And so the question they're asking is, should Christians eat food that has been part of this idol worship? Or, and also, should they eat it in places where worship is happening or where worship happens to idols? And the licentious group's argument for why they should be able to do that, they lay it out in verse 4, right? They say, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no God. They're basically saying, Paul, dude, just like seriously, man, we, we all get it. Like we all understand, right? Idols aren't actually gods. They're just like made up things. It's not real. There really is just one true God, right? The meat's just meat. It's not demon meat somehow after it got idol offered to an idol, right? Like and steak is good. So like let's just like let everyone be happy, right? And just do it. What you see is that Paul both agrees with them and disagrees with them. He, in, in chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, he says, you're right. 
yeah, idols aren't real gods. There's just one God, right? There's only one true God. There's only one true Lord. There's only one real king of everyone and everything, everywhere, and his name is Jesus. You're right. And in verse 8, he says, yes, you're right, that eating or not eating that food, it doesn't bring you any closer or farther to God. God is not more pleased with you if you don't eat it. He is not less pleased with you if you do. It's, it's not a big deal, right? But while he affirms their theology, he admonishes their application of it. You see, they had forgotten to ask a crucial question. You see, they, they, were, they were fine asking the question, can we do it, right? They're like, yeah, we can do it, whatever. You know, idols aren't real, it's not a thing. We're not worshiping some other god when we're doing it. We're just eating whatever's there, right? And so the question they needed to ask was not just can they partake in this part of their culture, but should they? Not just can you, but should you? You see, in a world that is radically committed to yourself, we rarely ask that question. We might ask the question about what can we do, but we rarely ask the one we really need to about what we should do. What we see is that Paul says to rightly answer the question of should, you need to think not first or even only about yourself or your own good, but more importantly about the good of others. Chapter 10, 23, he writes, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. I have the freedom to do whatever I want, but not everything is constructive. Not everything builds you up. Not everything builds others up. He says, no one should seek their own good, but instead the good of others. See, as we think about what it looks like for us to engage with the world around us, Paul's not just saying, hey, evaluate if something is something you can do. Just ask the question if it's beneficial for you. Ask if it's good for you. No. He says, you can't stop there. You've got to ask the questions about, is what you are doing, is the way you're thinking, is what you're talking about, is that something that actually builds up others? Is it good not just for you, but it is, is it good for others? You may be free in Christ to do this or that, but ask first whether or not this will help build up others. In chapter 8, he's calling the Corinthians to think first about and foremost about how the exercising of their personal freedoms might impact their fellow believers. He writes in, in, in verses 6 through 8, he says, he says, yes, it's true, idols aren't real, and there's just one God. He says, but not everybody totally gets that yet. Seven, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. In other words, Paul's saying there's a bunch of people who are brand new Christians, and they've lived their whole lives living, worshiping all different kinds of gods and all different kinds of things, and, and eating the food that's been sacrificed to other gods has been inherently a part of every part of their lives. And part of that worship, and their conscience is telling them rightly that worshiping false gods is wrong. And Paul says, but your actions are messing with their consciences. Your freedom, the exercising of your freedoms is, is messing with the consciences of, the, of these other believers. You're confusing them. You're causing them to question their own conscience or maybe to ignore it altogether. When they see you eating food sacrificed to idols, even though you're not doing it as an act of worship, it's just a cheap meal for you, right? They're thinking, wait a minute. I thought that we were just supposed to worship Jesus and not Zeus and not Athena and, and not Aphrodite, but, but maybe that's actually okay, Maybe my conscience is telling me that's wrong. Maybe I just don't get it yet. Maybe, maybe I just don't really understand what it really means to follow Jesus yet. And Paul's saying, don't do that. 
you are harming the conscience of your fellow believers. Now, just briefly, just a side note about our conscience, right? Part of being made in the image of God and in made in his likeness is that we all have a conscience, right? And your conscience is kind of like your inner GPS, right? It kind of tells you uh, the right way to go and the wrong way to go, right? And, and the Holy Spirit often works through our consciences as we think about navigating life. And the reality is, is that our consciences can often malfunction, and they can often even be seared. A seared conscience or a defiled conscience is one that's been ignored or disregarded so much that you no longer, it no longer responds the way that it should anymore. And Paul says you need a conscience. You need, to, you need that inner GPS. It's part of God's nature and design. It's part of the way that he made you. And you need that. You need it to work rightly because that's part of how, how we follow Jesus Right, and so Paul's telling this licentious group in Corinth, be careful by, even if your own non-sinful actions that you do with a personally clear conscience, that you don't actually lead others to defile their own conscience, to sear it, to ignore it, and so to be led back into sin. He says in verse 9, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, that the use of your freedoms does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what's sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Paul's writing to this church and he's saying, it might be fine for you to partake in these meals and eat these kinds of things, but be careful not to tell others with your words or with your actions to ignore the conscience that God has given them. Don't accidentally trip others up in their faith and lead them back into a life of sin and of worshiping something other than Jesus. Again, for this licentious group, it wasn't worship for them. It was just a cheap meal. It wasn't a big deal. But for many others in their church, it was a real problem because it was about worship, not just about food. Paul says, be careful not to trip others up in their faith and the use of your own freedoms. In college, I was a, a huge Apple computer fanboy. Uh, I still am to a bit of an extent, and I spent a lot of time kind of evangelizing the cult of Mac in college, right? If, you, if you, some of you knew me back in the day, and you know that that really was the case, and I spent a whole lot of time talking more about that than I did about Jesus at the time, but... I remember one particular night, I, I spent hours trying to convince two of my friends who were both pretty young in their faith that, that they re should really spend a bunch of money that they didn't really have on new laptops, right? Because that would, it would just be great for them, right? They could be in the club, the cool kids club, right? And I remember later that week, uh, Hannah, who we I think we were dating at the time, uh, she's just, just really frustrated with me. I'm like, what is going on? Like, I do not, like, what is happening here, right? And, and she's, she basically says, she's just like, don't you know that you're trying to convince, convince these two friends of ours? Don't you know that you're trying to convince them to spend this money that they do not have on something they do not need is actually leading them to, like, to prioritize things in their lives other than Jesus? They don't have this money, and even if they did, what they should be spending it on is like some opportunities for ministry in their lives that are coming up. And if you tell them to spend all this money on this other stuff, you're going to keep them from actively pursuing Jesus in their lives. You're accidentally telling them, she told me, that what they really need most, what's really going to fulfill them is some stupid computer. 
P.S., guys, if, if your girlfriend is willing to graciously call you out on something like that, right, that is not a con, that's a pro. Marry that lady, right? You, you need her, because you are probably an idiot, and God is sending you a lifeline, and you need all the help you can get, all right? And so if that is the, right, like, just, that's for free, okay? That's for free. It's not in the Bible, but it should be, okay? So anyways... You see, there, there's nothing inherently wrong with getting a new laptop. I've got, I had gotten one recently at the time. I have gotten plenty others since. I had saved and planned and budgeted. It was, it was fine. It wasn't a controlling thing for me. But for my two friends, it was going to be. It was going to be something that would cause them to drastically realign their priorities and realign the things that were important to them and realign the way that they used their money and spent their time. It was going to lead them to prioritize something over and above their relationship with God and their pursuit of him in their lives. I just remember the weight of God's gracious conviction in that moment. You see, I had been a stumbling block for my friends. And it wasn't like I was telling them to do something that was inherently sinful or that I myself was even doing something inherently sinful what I was accidentally teaching them to do and leading them into was to a life of worship to something other than Jesus. To allow something else to be the controlling, overwhelming influence in their lives. And I hadn't just sinned against them, I had sinned against God by tripping them up in their faith. And so I had to go to apologize to them and ask them for forgiveness for that. You see, and so in chapter 8, Paul's telling us that we need to think about the good of others, the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ when we're evaluating not just if we can do something, but should we do it? And should we encourage others to do it as well? But in, in chapter 8, he's calling us to prioritize the good of our non... In, in chapter 10, he's calling us to prioritize the good of our non-Christian neighbors as well. He says in verse 27, if, a, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions. Right? And the, the legalist group in Corinth was like, oh, What? Go to a friend's house? I don't know if I can do that, right? Like, they might serve something. I might not, maybe theoretically, supposed to be not eating. Paul's like, dudes, just like go to your friends, right? Jesus called you to love the people in the city, right? Not just to live wildly set apart from them physically, right? Like, go to dinner at your friends, okay? He says, but if someone tells you that this has been offered as a sacrifice, then don't eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. He's telling the Corinthians, if you're, you're out to dinner at a friend's and, and they don't tell you where the food came from, then don't worry about it, right? Like, don't worry about it. Like he said in chapter 8, you're free to eat whatever you want to eat. It's not a problem. But, he says, if they let you know that the food's been sacrificed to idols, then politely decline, not for your sake, but for theirs. See, it's likely that the, the reason that a friend in Corinth would have let them know, hey, this food's been sacrificed to idols, right, is because maybe this person, they know that this friend had recently become a Christian and their life seemed to be changing a whole lot and they used to go to the temple for worship all the time and revelry and, and meetings and all kinds of stuff, but they're not really doing that anymore and they, they start, they're starting to talk about this Jesus guy who keeps changing them and, and their lives are starting to look different in all kinds of ways and, and so out of a courtesy to their friend, they're like, I don't know if you're really into this thing anymore. Additionally, Paul says, you don't want to accidentally let them know with your actions that idol worship is not a problem, that it's not a big deal. Yeah, whatever, go for it, you know? You see, Paul is instructing these believers 
even if you have a freedom to engage in whatever action it might be, think first about how that action might affect others, what it might say about what it means to follow Jesus, what it might say about what it means to love him and be submitted to him. Another example from my college days that might help bring this into perspective. I don't really know why all these examples are from college, but whatever, right? Uh, for me, uh, and this is just, uh, hopefully this is helpful, but for me, until I was about 22, uh, I had a conscience issue with, with drinking alcohol. My dad grew up in a home that was ravaged by alcoholism, and he became a Christian in the 70s. I was a first-generation Christian, and so uh, he and, his, and, and our family, alcohol is just outright, there's no way that's a part of our lives in any way, shape, or form. And unfortunately, I treated that issue in a very legalistic way, where I would look down on other people, especially other Christians who decided that drinking was fine. Like, I don't, what, do, what do you mean it's fine? It's not whatever. The reality is, is that while the, the Bible absolutely condemns drunkenness, it doesn't ever tell us not to consume alcohol in moderation. And so in college, I had some friends who really graciously and patiently kind of challenged me on some of those kinds of things. And, and, and the way I thought about that, and over time, my conscience changed. And it lined more up, I think, in light with God's word, and, and I felt free to drink in moderation. But when I would hang out with my non-Christian friends in college, I would still choose not to drink with them. And when they'd offer me a drink, I would politely decline. And that wasn't because I thought it was still wrong for me to drink anymore, but because, because when, what they, when they knew me, that was something that I wouldn't do because of my faith. And I didn't want them, that to negatively impact my witness. See, I wasn't trying to hide something from them. I just didn't want them to think that they were encouraging me to do something that I didn't think was right. Also, I knew that for them, drinking was almost universally about getting drunk. And I wasn't trying to affirm that reality in their lives. Now, I just want to be overtly and abundantly clear. I am not telling that story or using that example as a way to tell you, here's how you should act in this situation, right? Here's how you should think about drinking or not drinking. Here's how you should think about doing it with your non-Christian friends. That is not the point of the story. See, I don't want this church to accidentally just be some personal reflection of my own conscience. I want you guys to actually be led by the Spirit of God, and I want you to be sensitive to his leading in your heart, not just like what Brandon says is right or wrong or what you should do in every specific situation. God does not need my help, right? He is perfectly capable of leading you on your own. Instead, what I'm saying is that I, I, I tell that story because it, it is an example of where I was free to lay down my own freedoms for the good of my friends that didn't know Jesus yet. And is the way I did that, is everything about that the exact right thing I should have done? I don't know. But the thing that I was thinking about in the midst of that situation is that I want to care for my friends that don't know Jesus yet. And I want to prioritize their good instead of my own freedoms. See, and that's the principle Paul keeps coming back to over and over like I said, he sums it up at the end of chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God and don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, for even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of others that they may be saved. Paul tells them, he says, don't use your freedom in selfish ways. Instead, live for the glory of God. Use your freedom in Christ to live for God's glory and for the good of others. And that requires you to think first of others and not yourselves. I just want to be clear, right? Our, our actions and the way that we talk 
are not actively encouraging people to go worship some statues in some random temples in some pagan world, right? Like, that's not the problem that we're running into, but I, but I might encourage you to think about it this way. How might the way that we talk, how might the way that we live, how might the things that we affirm, how might, how might they actually be encouraging others to return to the worshiping the idols, worshiping the false gods of power or comfort? or control, or approval? How might the way that you talk about your new job at work and all the changes you're planning on making and, and all the ways that you, you want to really fix things and bring things up, how might the way that you talk about that stuff lead a brother or sister in Christ who struggles with the idol of power to return to worshiping it or, or to affirm the pursuit of authority and influence over others as a primary goal in the lives of somebody that doesn't know Jesus yet? How might the way you talk about a, an upcoming vacation, about the, the ways that you're spending your money or the ways that you're doing that, how might that lead others who might wrestle with the idol of comfort to be tempted again to give themselves to prioritizing their own freedoms and their own comforts and living for their own good? How might the way that you talk about needing to control all the situations in your life, how might that actually be leading your kids to think that what really matters is that you have control of all the variables in your life. You see, what I'm not saying is that you need to question and second guess every possible thing you ever say or do, right? I'm not trying to get you to just like, oh, I need to just evaluate every possible thought and action I could ever, ever think about. But instead, what I am saying is that we should regularly be asking God to make us sensitive to the weaknesses of others around us. I should be regularly asking God to make us sensitive to the weaknesses of others around us and to be increasingly characterized by intentionally seeking their own good instead of just our use of our own freedoms. Warren Wearsby, he writes it this way, he says, the mature Christian lives for Jesus first. Others next. He puts himself last. He is happy to deprive himself even of good things for the good of his brother. Does that characterize your attitude? Does that characterize the way you think about the use of your own freedoms? Are you always raging against people keeping you from exercising your own freedoms? Or are you happy to lay your freedoms down? for the good of others. You see, doing that is hard. Doing that is really hard, especially in a world that endlessly tells you to pursue what you care about and to exercise your own freedoms and to never let anyone else tell you what you should or shouldn't be doing. See, the only thing that causes us to live in a way that reflects Jesus is to regularly and intentionally be thinking first about the good of others rather than our own freedom is when we keep coming back to the way that God did that for us. Verse, chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Stephen, um, one commentator, thanks, just so beautifully puts it this way. He says, 
Our fulfillment is not bound up in self-expression and the exercise of personal freedoms. It is bound up in the ultimate self-expression of a God who is characterized by a self-giving love. He says Christians are not able to enjoy freedom because God himself, uh, Christians are able to enjoy freedoms because God himself sacrificed his freedom on their behalf. The most entitled person of all gave up his rights for us. And so our liberties are ours because the ultimate strong Younger brother gave up his liberty to secure the liberties of his weaker brother, namely you and I. And Christians can love their neighbors for the glory of God because Jesus loved us, his enemies, for the glory of God. And we can disadvantage ourselves for others because Jesus ultimately disadvantaged himself for us. Church, I need you to see this. You see, the degree to which we are gladly willing to lay down our freedoms for the good of others is the degree to which you really understand the purpose and aim of the gospel in the, in the first place. You see, it's not a question of what we are free to do or not. It's a question of how we can best use our freedoms for the sake of others. We are, not all, we are only truly free if we set aside our freedoms for the sake of others. You see, people are always more important than the exercise of our freedoms. And so, yes, the Bible might give you freedom to do this or that, and, and your conscience might give you freedom to do it, and your strength in whatever area might give you freedom to do it, but your friend. Or your brother, for their sake, might cause you to lay aside your freedoms and to restrict yourself in an effort to love them as Jesus has loved you. See, and every week when we take communion, that's what we're remembering. That's what we're reminding ourselves of, reminding of, of all that Jesus did for us how he laid aside all of his rights and privileges. We, we read in, in the Gospels how at any moment Jesus hanging on the cross could have, he had the right to call down allegions of angels to immediately stop all that was happening. And he chose to give up his freedoms. And he gave up what was due him, the glory and honor that he absolutely deserved. And he gave it up for us. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember, to remind ourselves about Jesus and all that he gave up for us so that we, in beholding him, we might become like him, gladly willing to lay aside our freedoms for the good of others. And so as we sing and as we worship and as you remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus and if it's his glory that's the thing that you are most concerned about living for, then I encourage you to take communion during our time of worship. There's a table in the back on the left and on the right. If you miss the elements, you can grab them there. But if you're here this morning and, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're still figuring out what that means, and even if that's something that you want to do in the first place, then I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion. See, communion is about remembering all that Jesus has done and celebrating all that he has done for us. Instead, I'd encourage you, come to Jesus. He is the thing you need. He is what you are looking for. He is the one who really frees you from a slavery to yourself and an ability really to live for him. And so as we take communion and sing this morning, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Have you just been asking the questions about what you can do or what you should do. 
not just what is fine and good for you, but what is beneficial and good for the lives of others. Where might God be challenging you to lay down your own freedoms for the good of others? And I'll just say this as we close. If you think about that question, and, and you never find places where God is asking you to limit your freedoms for the good of others, that is either because you have fallen into the ditch of legalism and you're always trying to limit the, the freedoms of others, or because you fall into the, the ditch of license and you're ignoring your primary call to live for God's glory and the good of others instead of your own. You see, in either case, we need the gospel. We need Jesus. We need the reminder of Jesus not seeking to use his own liberties, but seeking to liberate us from bondage to slavery to anything other than him so that we might actually be free to love him and to love others and to live for our own good and for his glory. And so to that end, let's pray. Jesus, um, God, we just need you again, as we said. God, we pray that you'd be gracious. I just humbly pray you'd be gracious. God, whatever this morning I had to say that was from you and was helpful and good and helping us think about uh, aligning our consciences with your purposes and, and with your word, God, I pray that that would stick and be helpful. Whatever helps us to think about thinking first about the good of others and, and not our own good, whatever helps towards that end, God, I pray that you'd cause that to stick in our hearts and for us to be characterized as a community who is deeply concerned, not first about ourselves, but the good of others. God, I don't want this church in any way to just be a reflection of my own conscience or the places or areas where I am strong or where I am weak. But instead, I want us to be a people who seeks after you and who is sensitive to your leading and your conviction in our lives and who cares again first and foremost not about our own freedoms and the exercising of our own freedoms, but instead who cares most about your glory and the good of others that people might know and love and follow and worship you with their whole lives. And so Jesus, correct us where we need correcting and encourage us where we need encouraging. Help us to be a church that loves you and leads others to do the same. Amen.